Good morning, everyone. Uh, maybe I'll just quickly pray again. All right, thanks, Lord, for all that we've uh, learned so far in the songs and in the readings and in uh, what's been said this morning uh, about who you are and uh, and your goodness to us. Uh, Lord, as I preach from this psalm, may we learn more uh, about who you are and uh, and may we appropriately respond to you uh, in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. The favour of man uh, is a very fickle thing. Uh, of course, we all sort of are aware that as we do good things for people, generally speaking, people like you. Uh, but if you do bad things to people, they stop liking you pretty quickly. And of course, once you've fallen out of favour with someone, it becomes very difficult to get uh, people to like you again. Um, in the last couple of weeks, um, if you're a cricket fan like I am, you'll have seen um, how the, the Australian team has dropped a couple of underperforming batsmen. Um, and... And that may well be the last that we've heard of these fellows because, uh, or at least on the international stage, because it's incredibly hard to get selectors to like you again once they've already dropped you once. Uh, politicians are another good example. You know how many uh, high-ranking politicians, if they get voted out, they often just retire from politics for good because they know it's going to be hard to get the public to vote for them a second time. But that leads us to an important question, doesn't it? Does it work the same way with God? Can we fall out of favour with God? Um, And if the answer is yes, then how hard is it to get back into his favour? Well, here in this psalm this morning, uh, uh, it sort of starts um, with this, this question in mind. Um, there's three parts to this, this psalm. Uh, the first one uh, I've entitled Temptation, you'll see in your bulletins. <clears throat> uh, and for David, uh, who wrote this psalm, the psalm starts with this temptation, this temptation to question whether God has uh, given up on him, whether God, whether he's lost the favour of God. Um, I'm reading from an ESV and just under the the, uh, sermon or the the passage number, the chapter number, there's some little small caps sentence. Um, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And that's actually uh, from the original Hebrew Bible, which our translations are derived from. Um, It's actually... Uh, it's actually original. It's um, not added there by English translators. It's um, it's often called the title, and it uh, gives us the background for the psalm. <clears throat> um, if you'll bear with me, I'll try and summarise the background a bit because um, it really tells us what uh, David's mindset is as he as he as he penned this psalm. Um, but but a heads up: the story of Absalom is actually quite a long one. Uh, it goes from 2 Samuel 13 right through to chapter 18, um, but I'll do my best to summarise it briefly. Um, I apologise to all you note-takers, this is going to be a pretty rollicking ride through the 
the life of David. Um, but here goes. David, uh, as we, uh, as you probably remember, was God's chosen king of Israel. Um, David had been anointed, as Steve mentioned last week, he'd been chosen by God to be king. Uh, but at the height of his power, David slept with another man's wife, with Bathsheba. Uh, he impregnated her, he launched a full-scale cover-up, he murdered her husband, all of these things. Um, and not long afterwards, one of his sons, uh, called Amnon, raped his half-sister. So one of David's sons raped one of David's daughters. Um, and this is where the story of Absalom starts. Because Absalom was the full brother of this raped sister, and he was infuriated, as you would be. Um, and so he murdered this brother who'd done the deed. Um, now, for that, he was exiled, but when he came back after a few years, um, Absalom enacted a coup against David. Uh, he took the throne for himself, he attempted to kill David, and as the psalm title says, David fled. Now, if you were here last week, you might think this is a bit of a weird thing for David to do. As we read last week, David is God's anointed king, and God said, I'm going to stick up for you against all the armies of the world, all the kings of the world. God is going to fight for David. But when his son came for the throne, David fled. Why did he run? Well, look at verse 1. Look what he says. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. You can see his mindset there. He's running because there's just too much going on. There's too many people. Um, And David's not really exaggerating here. The whole, uh, or almost all of Israel got behind Absalom. David's band of loyalists was quite small, really, relatively speaking. And so David's scared. He's on the run. He's got this entire nation against him. And this is where he starts to wonder, does God really still want me on the throne? Am I ever going get to get to go back, get to return to my throne in Jerusalem? And, and again, this is where that idea of God's favour comes into play. Could David really have fallen out of favour with God? I mean, from a human perspective, he's certainly done enough to deserve it, hasn't he? He's, he's impregnated Bathsheba, he, he's murdered her husband, he's raised both a rapist and a murderer. This guy's really not fit to be king, is he? Why would God like a person like that? Um, and, and from a human perspective, it certainly seems like David has fallen out of favour with God. He's on the run. He's, he's been ousted by a coup. Absalom rules from his throne. Absalom controls the capital city of Jerusalem. Absalom reigns over all of Israel. It certainly looks like David's fallen out of favour with God. And, and at the very least, David seemed to think it was possible. Uh, 2 Samuel 16, uh, David... was fleeing from Jerusalem and he was uh, cursed by by one of Saul's uh, family, Saul the previous king. Uh, And David at the very least seemed to to wonder whether this curse was a a prophecy from God, that God um, wanted him out. Could David have fallen out of favour with God? He, He certainly was tempted to think so. 
And not only that, but David was tempted to think that there was no hope of getting back into God's favor. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him. Now this is a serious thought. Could David have fallen out of favor with God? Would David ever be able to get back into God's favor? Now again, we know from the previous psalm that that, uh, this isn't necessarily the case. God promised to defend his anointed against all the armies of the world. And, And here David's worried that God's cast him out. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you'll have found that things that we know are true from God's perspective don't necessarily seem that way from our perspective. God answers prayer, we know that, but, but maybe you've been praying for, for, for so long with no, with seemingly no answer. We know that God rules the world, but, and yet we see things spiraling out of control, people, wicked people ruling. Uh, we know that God will keep his children securely, but apparent Christians that you, you really respected have, have walked away. And this is what's going on here. David knows something to be true from God's perspective, and yet it doesn't seem to line up with reality, or with his experiences, I should say. Uh, one theologian I, I've heard called this uh, a subjective theology. That, that is the way our experiences teach us to think about God, um, and whether rightly or wrongly. Um, this idea of subjective theology is... is something that sort of comes up a bit in the Psalms, you'll see um, that the Psalms are born out of experience. They're born out of life, real life. Now, we, we need truth to guide what we believe about God, not our experiences. Um, but it, it is important to understand what our experiences are teaching us so that we can apply that truth well to our lives, to our hearts. Uh, at the end of verse 2, you might um, notice there's a strange word there. It says sailor or sailor or however you pronounce that. Um, some Bibles put it in the footnote, um, especially the NIV, I know. <clears throat> um, and it's it's a, a, another strange word that comes up a lot in the Psalms. Um, and it's, uh, it is not a, it's not an English word. It's um, an original Hebrew word. Um, respelled in our English letters. Um, and no one quite knows exactly what it means. I'll preface with that, um, which is why most bi- English Bibles just have that transliteration. Um, but, uh, but the best guess we've got um, is that it's, uh, it's certainly a, a musical instruction, probably, because it come up, comes up so much in the Psalms, uh, which were written as songs, um, and it's uh, the first, one of the first translations, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, used a word that means musical interlude. So we sort of think it means uh, a chance to pause and to reflect on what's been said. Um, and this is a fair point to take a moment to pause and reflect. To think that God could have rejected his anointed king. 
What a thought. So that was David's temptation, to believe that he had fallen out of favor with God and that there was no way back. Um, But as I said, we need to combat these temptations with truth. And that's our second point, our second section, verses 3 and 4, the truth. Uh, Let me read those verses again. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, says David, and he answered me from his holy hill. Here is the truth. God has not rejected his anointed. God's favor has not left David. Not because of who David is. Remember, David's still done all these horrible sins, but it's because of who God is, isn't it? God is faithful. He does not change. His promises are forever. His gracious favor is forever. He is David's shield, his glory, the lifter of his head. That is who God is. He answered David's cries, it says in verse 4. He answered David's cries from his holy hill, which sort of seems like a strange thing to say where, uh, where God is everywhere. He's with David wherever he goes. Um, But remember that the holy hill, Jerusalem, belonged to Absalom from a human perspective. This is where God's uh, throne was, his tabernacle, uh, sorry, his earthly throne, I should say, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, But remember, Jerusalem belonged to Absalom, but God's favour belonged to David. Absalom possessed the tabernacle, David possessed God's favour. Um, I wonder if you've heard the saying, uh, a weed is a plant that you don't want there. Um, the idea is if you're, if you have a garden, um, you, you have a, you maybe have your plants that you want there, your favorite trees or your, 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 your favorite tomato bushes. Um, <clears throat> and, and any weeds that come up next to it, you pull out because you don't want them interfering or, or stealing the nutrients from your favorite trees. This is what sort of, that this is the idea of God lifting David's head. He, God wants, God is, is growing David, his favorite tree, if you will. Um, and he's going to pull out all the weeds, all the kings that he doesn't want there. Uh, all, and so, so Absalom, again, does not possess God's favor. Now, uh, 2,000 years later, we, uh, uh, David is, is long dead, of course, but God, uh, sorry, 3,000 years later, I should say, um, David is very long dead, but God has a king still. God has raised up a king, a, a favorite tree, if you will, and his name is Jesus. He, he is the greatest king, the, the great anointed one of God, uh, and he will reign forever. Uh, you, you will do well at this point to remember the warning from last week. God says, I have set my king on Zion. He will rule the world. 
uh, and he will reign forever. All of the, the would-be kings, these weeds will be plucked out and burned. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. If we take refuge in him, if we are subjects of God's of, of Jesus' kingdom, then we too can rest secure in this promise, this promise that God's favour is eternal. This truth will stand forever that God will not set aside his chosen King Jesus, nor will he cast out any loyal subjects of Jesus. And that truth is, is the core of this psalm, uh, if you take nothing else away from this sermon, let it be this, that Jesus, God's anointed King, will always have God's favour. And if you submit to him as King, you too can be confident of that favour. Um, now, if you're not sure what it means to submit to Jesus as King, please uh, please talk to me or, or one of the elders or uh, someone you came to church with um, to, and we'd, we'd love to help you be part of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, but I want to now turn our attention to the last uh, four verses of this psalm, the, the third section, uh, which I've called Trust. Uh, we're going to look at what does it mean to have that confidence? What does that actually mean for us? Which is the focus of this third section of the psalm. <clears throat> Uh, Verses 7 and 8 give us two things that uh, David was confident about. Uh, In verse 7, David was confident that God will give victory, uh, the final victory to his anointed one. Uh, David's, and and of course Jesus now, enemies will suffer at God's hand uh, and they will suffer for the wrongs that they have done to to God's anointed king. Uh, In this image, David talks about uh, uh, God uh, striking the jaw, breaking their teeth. Um, And this is is sort of a a payoff for the the wrongs that they've done back in verse 2. They've slandered uh, God's anointed king, of course, with their mouths. And so God is going to punish their mouths for that slander. But God's punishment, of course, goes beyond just a broken jaw. Uh, God's Uh, The Bible says that all of Jesus' enemies, from the highest devil to the lowest of of, of all rebels, will suffer pain throughout the entirety of their bodies, throughout the entirety of of eternity future. So don't don't be Jesus' enemy, right? Submit to him, uh, as I said, uh, as your king. Uh, Seek peace with him that he has accomplished through his his own. A sacrifice. Um, because otherwise you will lose. And that's the first aspect that, that David is confident about. Uh, secondly, more positively, he was confident uh, that, that uh, God's favour will continue to rest on his people. Uh, the people that God had called David to rule, uh, and by extension us who are part of Jesus' kingdom too, uh, will receive the overflow of that favour that God has for our King. Uh, verse 8, as it says, Salvation belongs to the God, your blessing beyond your people. Uh, we see also in verses 5 and 6 that David was confident of these things 
Uh, even in the most vulnerable and, and most dangerous situations. Verse 5, David was not afraid to sleep. You know, this, these are, this is a, the most vulnerable situation. This is why we have alarms and smoke alarms and house alarms and all sorts of things. But even when Absalom was sending out assassins to try and hunt David down and kill him, David was quite content to sleep, resting securely in the knowledge that God would protect him. David was not, uh, also in verse, sorry, secondly in verse 6, David was not afraid to be alone, surrounded by the largest conceivable army, because God would protect him even then. Even with the army all around, God's shield is, is, is all around, surrounding David, protecting him from these armies. And so we too, if we trust God, we can be confident in even the most vulnerable and and dangerous situations that Jesus will be victorious and that we will receive blessings through him. But does that mean that we have no fear? Look at what David says in verse 6, I will not be afraid. Is, Is that... How, how are we supposed to under, how are we supposed to apply that? Are we really called to say, I will not be afraid in any situation? Well, not exactly, right? Fear is not necessarily a bad thing. We live in a world where there are times where fear is an entirely appropriate response to what's going on around us. And sometimes even fear helps us make wise decisions about what we do in this world. But the point of this psalm is that fear also tempts us. Fear also tempts us to believe lies about God. Even rational fears, when they get out of hand, often tempt us to believe a lie about God. This is what we see with David's experience. His fear of his enemies tempted him to believe that God would not save him. Uh, when we feel fear, we, th- we therefore have a choice. A choice to believe uh, one of two promises. See, our fears promise us that everything will end out horribly, don't they? But God promises us that everything will end out perfectly according to plan. So when we fear to lose our jobs or our home or so on, we're tempted to believe that we'll have no means of survival. But God promises to meet our needs as they arise. Or when we fear the world's lies, we're we're tempted to believe that uh, our children or or ourselves might be drawn away from from, from the scriptures, from the truth about God. But God promises us that none of, our, of his little ones will be ever snatched away. Uh, when we fear pain or, or terminal illness or persecution or death, we're tempted to believe that our lives will end in, in abject misery. But God promises that those who die in Christ will open their eyes in paradise, living forever in joyous, painless fellowship with him, and, and even for those who are in those situations of, of pain and, and suffering, 
Uh, as we saw in the in the last few months of Sam, of, uh, uh, Sam Linda's father, God grants peace and joy and hope to those people as well. When we fear wicked governments, when we fear shadowy conspiracies behind all the world's powers, uh, we're tempted to believe that they have true power in this world. But God promises that Jesus rules over all. All the kings of the earth cannot thwart his sovereign power or or, or retain their power forever. When we fear the future... We're tempted to believe that it will bring us some terrible calamity, but God promises us that he controls the future. He planned it, and all things will work together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes, as we just read. Now, now again, I'm not saying that these aren't fearful things, that we don't feel fear when we see these these dangerous and and terrible circumstances. But what I am saying is this, we need to hold on to the promises of God more tightly or or more, more importantly than these fears. We need it all to be in perspective that God is in control. Our fears ought not to overshadow the truths of who God is and our confidence in him. Because God's eternal favour rests securely on Jesus and by extension on us too. As Paul says, I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an eternal promise of God. That is always true. It is, if you are a child of God, that is always true for you. And so we can forever be confident of God's eternal favour. We can trust his promises and we can find great confidence in in his promises uh, for all the circumstances of life. And with that in mind, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much that you are faithful. Thank you that, that we can trust that your promises are true. Thank you that your favour uh, will always rest on Jesus and, and that we as his people will always be blessed in him. Uh, May we refuse to let our fears overshadow the promises that you have for us. And may those promises give us hope and confidence in all circumstances. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.